Welcome back to the Pregnantish Podcast, where we show the extraordinary ways families are built today with the help of science and technology. Thanks to today's sponsor, Bundle Fertility, which was founded to make fertility treatments more accessible. By reducing financial stress through treatment packages, Bundle is empowering families to control their personal path to fertility. Visit B-U-N-D-L Fertility for more. Today's episode, First Comes Love, Then Comes Marriage, Then Comes Infertility, is an interview with Samantha Bush, wife of NASCAR driver Kyle Bush, and the author of the new book, Fighting Infertility, Finding My Inner Warrior Through Trying to Conceive, IVF, and Miscarriage. We know how stressful infertility can be on relationships, and when we're saying our marriage vows at the wedding and sometimes talking about being fruitful with the minister, rabbi, or officiant marrying us, well, struggling to conceive isn't usually a chapter that's mentioned or on our minds. You start out and everything is so passionate, right? Like I think back to some of the crazy lovemaking when you're like, yeah, we're going to have a baby. It's like the honeymoon all over again. And then month after month after month after month goes by. And suddenly it's like, okay, well, according to Google, like this is the position. And the only reason you're having sex is to have a baby. It's no more connection and love and fun. It's just like, I need your sperm, like get it in me, get it in the right way, put my legs up. It's so hard. According to Resolve, in the U.S., one in eight, and in Canada, research shows one in six couples experience infertility. One in four experience pregnancy loss, and these are the ones talking about it. We need to update the narrative on family building and infertility, and I am so happy to have my guest Samantha Bush here to talk about her experience in the public eye with Kyle, navigating a tough journey to parenthood, and one that's still unfolding right now as they try to expand their family. Samantha, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to chat with you today. Me too. And I loved, you know, in the opening of your book, you thanked Kyle for allowing you to talk about his sperm and your sex life, <laughs> which I <laughs> which I so appreciated because all of us speaking out publicly, I've been on TV talking about this a lot. We should give our partners a high five for this. Um, he and you are both so obviously, you know, together in this, you're in the public eye with his racing career, your career, your work together. So I just love that you're so open. And, you know, today we're going to be talking about marriage and infertility. And so I'd love to talk about the beginning of Samantha and Kyle Bush. How did you guys meet? And when did you know you wanted to marry him? So I was in college. I worked a multitude of jobs to, you know, pay for everything that comes in college. And it was my junior year in the summer. And I, one of my jobs as a promo girl, and they sent me down to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And I was like looking at people's IDs and get them excited. They were going for a ride along on the track, but it wasn't a race car. It was just like a street car. And so anyways, they were like, Hey, you you want to go for a ride? Like the line's gone. I was like, sure. I hop in the car. There's this guy in there with the same t-shirt as me. We're like the same age. So I just assume he's a promo boy, right? So I'm chit-chatting away. He's asking questions. I think, you know, I'm like, oh, you know, he's cute. Like we're chit-chatting and I'm like, oh, hey, my girlfriends and I, there, there was like this little college bar district right down the road. And I was like, hey, we're going there tonight. Do you want to come with? And he was like, no, I'm busy. I was like, oh, okay. I read that wrong. Like, Bye. I don't know. Okay. So 
we ended up exchanging phone numbers and lo and behold, over time, you know, like over the few days, he's like, well, I actually raced. That's why I couldn't come out. And so then, you know, this is before like Facebook had just started. So this is like, there's no Instagram, there's no Twitter. Right. So like, how do you stalk somebody? So like I go to Google cause I'm like, he's probably lying, right. He's gotta be lying. And, and I see it. And then I got super awkward and I was like, Oh no, 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 no. I've dated a bunch of frat boys and like, if frat boys are bad, like what, what's a race car driver going to be like? So no, but you know, we started just texting and, and I was at school and he was on the road racing and, and then the text led to phone calls and then more phone calls. And, and pretty soon after four months of talking on the phone, he was like, do you think you'd ever, are ever going to come out on a date with me? And I was like, well, okay. So I ended up going and we went on our first date. It was in Texas and, and we hit it off. And then we started spending more time together. And then it was my winter break and his winter break. We spent like most of that together. And, and then I still have my whole senior year to finish. So then we went back to doing long distance. And of course, like that comes with its complications. And then I graduated though, and we got engaged and got married. And, and this past New Year's Eve, we celebrated our 10 year anniversary. Oh, congratulations. That's a big milestone. How how did you imagine your family building experience to go? When when I guess when did you even start thinking about that? So, I don't know. I mean, I guess I always assume like I come from a big Italian family. So, I mean, I only have one brother, but my my dad's one of six and we always hung out with our second and third cousins and they each have multitudes of children, right? So I just, I mean, I always assumed that we would have kids, but it wasn't until I'd say, you know, a few years into marriage. And then it gets that time in your life where like all of your friends start having babies. And so then suddenly you're like, oh, okay, this seems like a good idea. This is the next chapter in our life. Like, you know, I didn't go into it day one, like, okay, we're gonna have a baby. We were just kind of living life, really getting going in his racing career. And we were traveling and we were starting businesses. And then, you know, I feel like one day you're like, okay, I we're, we're ready for this. And, and I talked to him about it. And, and he was on the same page, because I was like, hey, I think, you know, I think we could do this kind of like, what do you think? And he was like, yeah. And it wasn't, it was just like this very easy conversation. And, and then we we're like, okay, let's, let's try this. We're young, we're healthy. Let's, here we go. Yeah. And I think, and I think that's so common for so many of us who uh, you, you talk about, you really paint your wedding in such a fairy tale way in the, the book, you know, the winter in Chicago and champagne and chocolate fountains and classic photos and cars. And it sounded magical. And, and when you plan if you're anything like me and we may be similar in this way, we're, you know, focused and passionate. And I know you describe yourself as type A and you think, okay, I make decisions and I go for things and they happen. And then when, I mean, I laughed out loud in your book when you talked about the summer baby thing, because I, you know, picking the summer baby clothes, because you and Kyle had discussed, now we're ready to try, we're going to have sex to have a baby, like it's going to happen. And I remember saying to my husband, Michael, you're off school because he's a teacher in the summer. So we're going to have a summer baby and we're going to have barbecues on the Brooklyn waterfront. It's going to be amazing. And then, you know, a year in, two years in, three years in, give me any season, just give me a baby. I don't care. All the planning in the world, you cannot control it. So what what happened? When did you realize you might have an issue? 
we, you know, started trying and everything was great and fun. And, and then the first few months, you don't really look into it that much. You're like, okay, I came off birth control and, you know, I've been on that for forever. So I'm sure that's got to take a while to come out. And, and then, you know, like around six months, I called the OBGYN. I was like, hey, you know, I just want to let you know, like, it's not really happening for us and we're young and da, da, da. And they're like, okay, well, don't worry until a year. And I'm like, okay, but like, I don't really want to wait that much longer. So like, what else can I do? And so, you know, then we started tabulation kits and reading online of like all the other things you could do and then sex positions and this and this and this and that, right? And then I feel like month eight, nine, 10, 11, now it's like fanatical, right? Totally. This isn't fun anymore. Like, yes, it's fun. Sure, sex is great, right? But this is no longer sex. This is, I need your sperm because we're trying to make a baby and it has to find my egg. And therefore, it's not going to be this spontaneous lovemaking. It's more like this position is supposed to help and don't do this. Grab the pillows afterwards, get my butt up in the air, you know? And, and it just had, was such like a huge shift and to not see results, like that's when it starts to really wear on you. And it, it so wears on you. And for those listening who don't know, if you're under 35, as many of us were when we started trying with infertility, you're told to wait a year because you have time. But five months in of periods and no pregnancy, that feels like dog years at that point. Yes. Yeah, it is not five months in real, in reality. So when did you book with a fertility specialist? And what did you learn? So around the year mark, like I started breaking out really bad, and my hair was falling out, and I started bleeding really heavy. And it was kind of like, okay, you need to take me seriously, somebody needs to see me, somebody needs to test me. This is insane. Like, all of my friends have had babies. What what is going on? And so I went there and they ran the test and like instantly they're like, oh yeah, you have PCOS. Oh, okay. And I'm like, okay, great. Perfect. Like, like I've known that a little sooner. Right. And, and what was frustrating me is like, sometimes I would call and be like, Hey, my cycle's like all over the place. Like I might get a period after 45 days and then get them, I don't know, eight days apart. I'll start bleeding this is really abnormal. And I just kind of kept getting, well, you've been on birth control for so many years. Like we see this all the time. Like just let it flush out of your system, blah, 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 blah. Mm. And finally, when I was like, look, I have bald spots. I am bleeding. Like somebody needs to see me. So frustrating. I know you said in the book that they put you on Clomid at this point, which drove you hormonally crazy for months. Uh, You have some funny stories in there from your, your crazy Clomid days, which probably didn't feel all that funny at the time. And that whole time, even though most of us learn as kids that it takes a healthy egg and a healthy sperm to make a baby, nobody thought to test your husband during this whole time until you booked an appointment with a fertility specialist? Yeah. So it wasn't until we got to the fertility clinic and they started running all sorts of tests. And then they're like, oh, we're going to test Kyle. And we were both kind of like, wait, what? (laughs) No, it's me. They told me it's me. And they're like, well, they almost looked at us like, duh, of course we have to test him. And so when we found out that he ended up having issues too, I was just 
kind of angry because those five cycles of Clomid were really hard. And to know that they would have never worked regardless, it was just frustrating that we always tell people now to be your own advocate, ask for a blood test, ask for an ultrasound, ask for a sperm sample, because you have to know what cards you're playing with. And now we had gone through so many failed tests and so many, you know, different medicines and just ping-ponging back and forth and free-falling. And obviously, month after month is just such a huge blow. And if upfront, we would have known to either ask for these tests or nowadays, so many of them, they get mailed to your house. You just need to know. It's that it's, it's the not knowing what you're working with that is so hard and how much time was wasted that could have been prevented. 100%. And that's why I know you and I know I and so many people we connect with are patient advocates, because you have to be you have to be your own advocate. And also, you know, it's so overwhelming at the beginning, especially when you're trying and you talk about Dr. Google in your book. So I know that we all we all use a lot of Google and other search engines. And sometimes it drives the the doctor's crazy, but it every day that passes is nerve wracking, especially when you're high in hormones. The reason we call pregnant pregnantish is because when you're on some of these hormones we've been talking about, you're like in the first stage of pregnancy. You have so many hormones running through your body. You're so emotional. And so more information, the better, even if it's not information you necessarily want to hear. It's just information, right? Right. And you need to know and you need to be okay to ask. And that's where I was so many years ago. I felt like it's weird because I have a big personality, but I almost felt like timid or embarrassed or like I didn't want to push the line, right? Like they told me to wait. Okay, I'm going to wait because that's what they said. Like it hasn't been a year. So I'm going to hold on to that. And I feel like now there's such a strong community of women with big voices that are like, here's the things to ask and here's ways to get tested and here's what you should look for. And and it's just so helpful now. Like I really wish so many years ago I would have had that because I also think it gives you confidence to know that, hey, it's okay to ask these questions and it's okay to speak up and this is your life and your care. And the more information you have, the better your journey is going to be. It is such a different landscape because when you started trying to conceive and when I started, I think it was around 2011, there wasn't what there is today on Instagram, on social media, in terms of websites. I mean, Pregnish was first to market as the first non-medical site in the category. There were a heck of a lot of medical sites, a lot of personal blogs, but it felt, and it still for many feels lonely, but it felt, if it's possible, even more isolating because what you're seeing on Facebook and amongst your friends are pregnant bellies. You're, you're not seeing a lot of chatter about people who have untraditional paths where sex doesn't make baby. I I would love to actually talk about sex with you because I really appreciate in your book, you dedicate time to that. And that's, you know, the biggest buzzkill is sex and infertility. I will tell you that. Um, (laughs) You called yourself a sex Nazi. Tell me, bring me back to that. What was happening with you and Kyle? It's funny. I mean, you start out and everything is so passionate, right? Like I think back to some of the crazy lovemaking when you're like, yeah, we're going to have a baby. It's like, 
the honeymoon all over again. And then month after month after month after month goes by. And suddenly it's like, okay, well, according to Google, like this is the position. And the only reason you're having sex is to have a baby. It's no more connection and love and fun. It's just like, I need your sperm, like get it in me, get it in the right way, put my legs up. It's so hard. And yeah, I do talk about it in the book. And there was literally, if people read the book, they'll understand it if they've been there. And I remember Kyle was in a meeting and my little ovulation stick was smiling at me. And I was like, I am ovulating. I am ovulating. You need to come home. And I remember being like so excited. And I was like, all right, this is it. Like, this is the time I could feel it. The stick is telling me it's like game time. And so like I text him and I'm like, I show him a picture. I'm like, come home, come home. You know? And I, I knew he was in a work meeting, but I'm like, okay, well, surely this is important. I don't know how long you ovulate for. So like, come on home. And I just remember 15 minutes going by and me like sending another text. And then like the intervals kept getting smaller. And I I say in the book, I literally sent him a text and I am not proud of it, but this is the level you get to. And I was like, do you need a fucking invitation to my vagina? Like, (laughs) you not know that this egg is like, I guess coming out and I need you home. And I just remember being afterwards, you know, I don't know, those sticks always told me I was ovulating and I was crazy and I ended up having my period right after. But I just look back now and I'm like, wow. Samantha, we've all gone there. We've all been that crazy person. And, you know, it's so funny because I I talk a lot about, you know, I've been a relationship author for years and uh, lovemaking and baby making are very different. And one of my biggest tips for couples always is you have to get it on and flirt and connect when you are not ovulating, when there's no chance of fertility, because otherwise exactly what you're saying. It becomes super mechanical. It's just not sexy to be like, I'm ovulating. <laughs> and exactly. and you have four, we have 48 hours and talk about a pressure cooker. And I loved your, your honesty in the book when you said it wasn't even possible. I mean, Kyle's always found you so attractive and appealing and, and somehow it, you, you got to the point where you just, you didn't, you like took all the fun out of it and you you couldn't even see yourself that way. How could he see you that way? Exactly. I mean, it got to the point I was like, okay, I'm very confused by what I'm reading online and what these sticks are telling me and I'm overwhelmed. And so I looked at him and at first he was like, yeah, this is a great plan. Cause I was like, we are going to have sex every single day for a month. Like every single day. I don't know when the egg's coming out. Therefore, if there is always sperm around, like surely we're going to get pregnant. And mm-hmm. of course, you know, every guy out there is like, yes, like that's what I want. I want to do it every single day. Right. Well, no, once you get to like day 23, they're like, okay, but like really is a day off. Okay. And, and I was like, no, <laughs> every single day. And it's so funny because we don't tell that story enough, by the way, not just with fertility, men and women, it's, it's always the man who's horny and wants sex, but it's not the case. I mean, there's a lot of times men get tired too, <laughs> like men with all their testosterone and desire everybody's tired. Everybody's overworked. And so when he wanted a day off, is that when you became a sex Nazi? Yeah. Well, I mean, it was just happening constantly. I was like, we have to try this position. You have to put pillows under here. Like we have to do this. And, and now one piece of advice is just what you said. Like when you're going through this, there has to be times that you're like, look, we're going to go out to dinner and make love. We're not 
making love to have a baby. We are just connecting. Like it has to be spontaneous and look like I get it right. You're on edge, you're hormonal, you're emotional, but like take that time to put on something cute, look good, get at, you know, and, and like go for it. I love that. Cause I think another reason that's important, not only so you remember that you're lovers and partners, you're not just like soon to be parents and roommates. Another reason it's so important is because fertility treatments and infertility can really break down your sense of if we're doing truth talk, which we are like just feeling like a sexy woman, you know, and feeling desirable. And that starts with you. A good we starts with me, you know, you need to at your core feel turned on by your life and feel excited and passionate. And infertility just puts a wrench in that where your body is not doing what you think it's supposed to do. And that's really hard. So I, so I often say, in addition to what you're saying, I, and I totally agree with that, just, you know, find those points of connection, but even with yourself and your own womanhood, even putting on lingerie again yes. for yourself. Yes. Because gosh, when you're in that doctor's office, pu- pulling your sleeves up and your pants down every day, it's not too sexy. No, it's not. And, and that's the thing too, like now coming so far and having been through a miscarriage, failed cycle, failed surrogate cycle, like all the things I know that now. And and I just felt like at that time I was in such like a negative and dark space where, you know, you didn't want to go out. You didn't want to get dressed up. You didn't want to see people because obviously everybody's going to be like, Oh, why aren't you having a baby? When are you having a baby? How did you answer those questions when people asked you? It was really difficult. We were basically like in the midst of a NASCAR baby boom. I kid you not, like everybody was having babies and we had been married and, you know, so it was kind of like the next logical step. And so people would constantly ask us. And at first we got caught off guard. And so one piece of advice I give is have like a statement planned that you feel comfortable saying. And there might be a few different statements that you feel comfortable saying to like a stranger versus a coworker versus a friend. But you know, like Kyle would take the joking side and just be like, oh, well, practice is going great. And I would just kind of be like, oh, you know, we're just kind of, we were starting multiple businesses at the time. And so I was like, oh, we just want to like get these going first. And then, you know, and just kind of like played it off. And then we only told in the beginning, like a select few people that we were going through it. And then obviously the second time we told the world, cause my hope was that it would really take a lot of the stress off of other people if they could see things in real time and in a, in a really candid way. Which I've so appreciated because we followed each other for a few years now. And I think, you know, anytime you have a public platform, and you can destigmatize it. It's it's helpful. And one thing that you also touched on, and I do want to go back to the failed cycles, the surrogacy, and all of your steps through this. But I think relationships. The biggest misconception about infertility is that it ruins all relationships. It can strengthen relationships too. It can strengthen. We know we have research to show marriages do not break up because of infertility. If they do break up, they were meant to break up. Another life challenge would have driven us that way. And the same is true with friendships that break up or any relationships that end because you don't feel supported during infertility. 
chances are that person wasn't a long hauler. I think people always say like, oh, infertility can break up your marriage. And it it very well can because there's a lot of stressors going on. And for us, after a miscarriage, we felt like that was almost going to happen. I could give the little backstory. Everything, our first round of IVF with Brexton, it went great. And then our second round, we're like, we're going to show the world this. And like, there's all these Instagram videos of Kyle giving me shots and us going through like tips to make it easier and like going to transfer day and and here's what it's like and and we just let the world in on it it was it was great we had like everybody along on this journey with us because we were so confident right like why wouldn't we be we did IVF we had Brexton had a great pregnancy and then we announced that we're pregnant we did you know the whole thing with the pink smoke and Brexton had this like big bro shirt on and we took our Christmas card pictures and we're like all ready. And then a week later, we miscarried. And to get back to relationships, having to deal with a miscarriage is, it's so unexpected. It's so tragic and hurtful and painful. And it's hard. It's hard because everybody around you, they want to be there for you. But I also feel like they're walking on eggshells because they don't know how you're feeling that day and you're so hurt, but on the outside, you're trying to pretend you're okay for people. And I feel like we're in a marriage, it struggles. Like for me personally, because so much of our lives are out in public, it was constantly like put on a brave face, put on a smile for Brexton, try to be like the perfect mom, like nothing's wrong. And then by the end of the day, you're just emotionally exhausted. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think, it was taking me so much longer to grieve and cope and heal where Kyle was very much like, look, I'm sad, but there's nothing we could do about it. It's time to move on. And so him moving on and me being stuck and just being on different timelines essentially really caused a lot of arguments between us and a lot of arguments then that wouldn't have been arguments, but because we were both underlying mad at each other, I was mad. He wasn't devastated and crying daily with me in the trenches, he was mad that I wasn't healing fast enough, you know, and it took going to a therapist and finding a church and reading books and, and almost, you know, just feeling like, okay, are we going to make it to really put in the work that we needed? And now having that tool set to be able to communicate better and understand one another better and, and really have a stronger marriage through it. And so to your point, you're right. Infertility can be hard on your marriage, but at the same time, even in the darkest times, if you guys are committed and willing and put in the work, you come out on the other side with a marriage better than if you didn't have to face all of this. But totally. I, it strengthens because you're you're brought to your knees through loss and infertility and the grief just shatters you, as you know, and I know. And that's intimacy. You can't have intimacy without vulnerability. And there's nothing more vulnerable. And I think, you know, it's so interesting talking about this because I was telling you offline before we started recording, I've been a relationship author for years. I wrote a book called Cheat on Your Husband with Your Husband. This is all I've focused on. And yet me, the quote unquote expert, (laughs) as I was going through it, a lot of that went out the window because you do get frustrated that you're not grieving the same way. 
you do get frustrated that you know, someone's not supporting you in the way you need to be supported. And I think what couples forget so often is that you're both struggling and it may just have a different face and you may need different outlets. And I talk about this a lot also at Pregnish, but you need the people in your corner who are not directly in it because it's, it's even if someone ostensibly looks like he or she is moving on or doesn't care, that's just the, his or her own process of grief. It's not that it's true. So who who else was kind of in your corner supporting you and still even now supporting you through secondary infertility? I know you're close with your family too. Yeah. I mean, obviously my family and friends were there for me, but to be so honest with you, some of the most raw and helpful conversations I had were with complete strangers online through this infertility community, which I know sounds crazy, right? I get it. You know, I love my friends dearly, but some of them have had miscarriages. Some of them have just, you know, had, I mean, one of my very best friends who's like a sister, we we laugh. It's like her and her husband pass each other in the hallway and they're pregnant, you know? (laughs) And it's just crazy. Like when I was grieving so much with a miscarriage, I had people reach out to me and I I went back and responded to them and just had these like full in-depth Instagram DM conversations with women across the country who understood me, who to my core knew what I was feeling, even if I couldn't verbalize it. And they were the ones to kind of like walk me through it. And some of them I've stayed in contact with some, it was just like, I needed that message from them of, Hey, I've been through this. Here's what I did. Or it's just crazy to me that I almost felt myself being able to open up to strangers more Mm -hmm. than the people who are close to me. And I think that's because I wasn't in a position where I wanted, I didn't want to see their sympathy or their like pity, if you will. I didn't want like I knew they were feeling awkward, which then made me feel awkward. We're like talking to these strangers or these girls who now are not strangers, but then were, it was just very freeing. And I didn't have to pretend like I felt like with my friends and family, I didn't want them to be worried about me or anything. So like, I just would pretend around them, like everything was fine. So it's really interesting, this community. And honestly, like, I don't think I would be as open, as confident, and as calm as I am right now in my journey without them. Yes. It, whenever people talk about who, especially who aren't on social media or don't actively use social media, talk about Instagram being, you know, photos of your lunch. I mean, there is that on Instagram for sure. <laughs> but I think what it means in the infertility community is, is or any community that gathers around a high value, high stakes pain point, it's very different. And I think it's something that resonates with so many listeners, just finding sometimes the strangers that you meet online who just understand deeply what you're going through uh, yeah, is, a li- is a lifeline. It, they really are. And and I feel, you know, blessed to be able to do that back. I never, ever, ever, ever wished to go through a miscarriage again. And it was obviously the most devastating thing ever. But during quarantine, this husband reached out to me and he was like, 
I don't know who to turn to. We just lost our baby at 16 weeks. My wife has to go in by herself. I don't know what to say to her. I I want to be there for her. I'm so overwhelmed. And he was like, can you help me? And could you maybe like write her a message? And I did. And he and then she reached out to me afterwards. And, and she was like, thank you for basically like, understanding what I was feeling, but I didn't even know how to verbalize it. And and I, I kind of helped try to give him some pointers of like, hey, you know, this is what to expect. And, and here's how to be there for her. And, and not that I ever wish to obviously have gone through that miscarriage, but I kind of feel God has you go through things for other people, which is exactly how I feel like why we have the bundle joy fund and, and everything else. And in that moment, I was like, wow, okay, a miscarriage really sucked. But this community has given me so much. And I know today that I was able to give a little bit back. And I don't know, it, it sounds so, I guess, weird or cheesy. But like, I love all these people that I've never actually met. But- I know, it's the it's the weirdest part of online connections. But I, I get it so deeply. Yeah you don't know who's listening sometimes when you say the right words. You just don't know how you're penetrating or affecting someone in a way that becomes something that is so deeply meaningful. I I, I really appreciated in the book you talking about taking a step back when you heard about the finance, you know, the the cost of IVF and how much it was and how you thought, you know, I'm really lucky to have the means to do this, but so many people aren't. And I just want to, I just want to hear more about your bundle of joy fund and, and what inspired both of you when you had that thought. As everybody who's gone through IVF knows, you know, you sit in that financial room and they're handing you paper after paper and packet and here's the meds and here's this and here's that and here's that. And you're just like, whoa, whoa. And then they send you or they send you an email with the total bill and you're like, excuse me? Like, How many zeros is that? <laughs> right. I'm sorry. Wait, is this for real? And then, you know, you're like, okay, well, you know, what's insurance covering? And you're like, wait, they're not? Wait, what? I'm sorry. Can you explain this again? And we felt very fortunate that every bump in the road, whether it's been, you know, another transfer, another stim, a surrogate, we feel very blessed that we were able to do that. And just knowing and understanding the fact that that is not the case for other people, it really, really bothered me. It bothers me to my core. Like it frustrates me that insurance doesn't pay for this. And it frustrates me that people still say that having a child's an elective. And I I will never forget somebody one time was like, well, it's like cosmetic surgery. You don't actually need it. And I really was like, are you joking? It it infuriates me. Like I'm sitting here talking and if I had like a heart rate thing on right now, it'd be going up. No, my, my heart races when I hear that too. It's it's not fair. And, and it's not for anybody else to decide how you want to build your family and financial barriers should never stand in the way of something so important. I tell somebody, I'm like, do you remember the first time your child said mommy or daddy or the first time maybe they hit a baseball or, or, or did something that just made your heart stop and melt? Because of money, people don't get to feel that. And it 
it hurts me so much. And so we started the Bundle of Joy Fund. We're very proud. We're almost at the million dollar mark in donations. Incredible. Thank you. But it's not enough. We need to do more. We need to have politicians understand that there needs to be different state regulations and insurance companies and employers. Everybody has to understand what we're fighting for. I love your passion. And, you know, it's so interesting because finances, I was on Good Morning America two years ago during NIAW, and I talked about my eight years to parenthood and all the treatments. And a lot of the comments under our segment were about how rich I must be. And it really, I mean, I'm married to a public school teacher. We struggled, you know, every step of the way. We had insurance, thank God, for some of it. But there's there's so many misconceptions to your point about what's elective. You know, any medical disease is treated just like infertility is a medical issue. If you're, it's a disease defined by the CDC and the World Health Organization, and no one tells someone who wants treatment for another disease to just relax and it'll get better. And no one exactly. tells someone with another disease that they're entitled to want to get better. Finances should never prevent someone from accessing the treatment they need. And I love that Samantha and Kyle created the Bundle of Joy Fund to help people with this burden. Speaking of expensive treatments, our episode today is supported by Bundle Fertility, which makes financing treatments more in reach. Every team member at Bundle, from founder to staff, has been on their own fertility journey and they understand the physical, emotional, and financial toll it can take. Bundle seeks to help you navigate the financial aspect of fertility care with less stress and more control, so you can concentrate on building your family. By empowering you with more financial freedom and custom options, their packages increase your chances for success and let you choose the best path for your needs. Visit Bundle, B-U-N-D-L, Fertility, for more. The more people like you that can use your platform, your advocacy, your connections to not only destigmatize it, but to raise more funds, more awareness, the better. It's just so important. And I know a lot of people listening are very grateful for you for that. You know, one thing I want to also talk about is how Kyle has used his platform. Was there any point of him that, you know, as a NASCAR driver, obviously that's like a testosterone heavy thing to be a race car driver, manly man job, right? Was there any part of him that struggled with coming out or do you feel like you guys were hand in hand the whole time? So I feel like for Kyle, he's always been very supportive of me telling our story. He was like, look, I'm not as naturally outspoken, well, at least on this topic. He's like, I am totally fine with you talking about our diagnosis and talking about, you know, he, like, obviously he read the book and he saw all the writing and all the edits and everything beforehand, but he was like, I'm totally fine with that. Now, for him, I think his platform is great in that he has so many connections in order to be able to help grow the fund and use his platform to get it out there and to help so many people realize, you know, they hear about our story through Kyle's channels. And they're like, I never 
thought about it that way. Like I took for granted being a parent or I've had so many women tell me, cause a guy is not going to say this to a guy, but I've had so many women tell me that like their husbands didn't want to be tested until they heard us talking about Kyle being tested. And then their husbands were like, Oh, all right. Yeah, I guess I'll go, you know? And so Kyle's not going to maybe sit there and be like, yeah, so, you know, for my sperm sample, like he, like where I'm like, let's talk about our sex life. And I'll, you know, I just took a picture with like, I like to call her Wanda and you know, our little ultrasound stick. Like I'm just very over the top, but he definitely doesn't mind it. And I have to tell this story. It's so funny. So this guy, we're on pit road, we're getting ready for the race. And he comes up to Kyle and like fist bumps him. And he's like, Hey man, I don't have much sperm either. And Kyle <laughs> was like, um, I don't know if I can say like, cool. Thank you. I'm sorry. Like, I don't know how to right. like, that. Wait, How do you respond to that? Yeah. One thing that happened with us was, you know, when we were testing my husband, Michael's sperm, the doctor said, it looks perfect. Everything's great. It's plentiful. It's awesome. <laughs> and, you know, there's pros and cons when it's on both of you because you kind of share the responsibility. Yes. And I remember he looked at me one day and he said, you know, I kind of wish a little more was wrong on my side because I could share this this." He was sharing the pain, but he didn't want me to feel the the blame of it. And one thing that I remember in my crazy moments for having real talk here during marriage and infertility is a fight we had where we got a really bad result. I don't know. It was a failed transfer. I don't remember the exact details. I remember we were in a Los Angeles hotel room and Michael saw an ex of his who was a fertile myrtle, you know, like home birthed and like <laughs> beautiful and right. everything was perfect. And I said, you should have just married her. You should just be with a you, different, it wasn't even about age at that point, you know, but it was like, you should be with someone who's fertile. You should be with someone who can give you what I cannot. I'm barren. Like I just went nuts in this hotel room and I, you know, it was a really real moment of vulnerability, but I think we all have those moments where we don't want, I didn't want him to leave me for a fertile woman. I mean, I would have been really angry, <laughs> but, right. but I was encouraging him to do this in this crazy moment of hormones. And I think we've all been there. So you guys sharing a little bit in the diagnosis, was that helpful for it you? Was so helpful. So when I, I mean, and granted, I only had to have my diagnosis for five rounds of Clomid and like thinking it was just me, you know, but I will say, I guess when we were trying before, I didn't even know I had PCOS. I just think naturally as the woman, you're like, it's my fault. It's my fault. It's my fault. But literally, and I talk about it in the book. So they give Kyle his diagnosis, like we're sitting there and you know, it's our doctor and we're at this like big wooden table. And he's like, well, we've confirmed like you have PCOS and da da da. And then he looks at Kyle and gives him his diagnosis. And I just don't know what came over me. And I was like, you suck too. <laughs> and like I like shouted it and I was so happy. And Kyle's looking at me and I was like, high five. Like, and he's like, <laughs> what? And I was like, no, this is so exciting. Like, it's not just me. And like, it's us. Like we both have issues. And I was so happy about it. And 
I think because I was just like so scared. It was just me, as to your point, like just my fault, like that we weren't having kids. So when I found out like, yeah, you don't, you have an issue too. I was like ecstatic about it. And it made everything so much easier. And I think then it made it easier for him because I wasn't like, oh no, you don't have, you know, like, oh no. I was like, yeah, awesome. Yeah, awesome. We both suck. And that has been us ever since. And, you know, I mean, obviously, as we talked about after the miscarriage was really hard and really hard on us. But then, you know, since then, we've we've had a failed cycle myself. We had a failed surrogate cycle. Now we're back to egg retrieval. And you would think at this point, like we would be beat down. But I think like we're just a stronger team. We have all these coping tools from the therapist that I think help. We have a great church. And I I really hate when people say to me, like in God's time, like that really bothers me because I'm like, that's not for you to say to me. But like in my heart and in Mm -hmm. prayer, I just feel like, I'm like, okay, God, like you've got this. I've seen every step of the way, you know, I didn't want to go through IVF. You made me go through it. And then we had the bundle of joy fund. And, And then you... You know, we had a miscarriage and I didn't want to go through that. But now I feel like I understand the pain from so many more women and I'm able to help. And I'm like, okay, you know, like, okay, I get it. And then we had to go through a surrogate. And I was like, I do not want a surrogate. I do not feel comfortable with somebody else carrying my baby. I don't even like want people to babysit my child. Like, are you (laughs) kidding me? Like, I'm going to have to lock her in our house and monitor. I'm a crazy person. And then I was like, I found this woman and she was amazing. And we became great friends. And even though it didn't work, like we still talk and our, our kids play and I'm like, okay, like you maybe brought her into our life for another reason. And, and so every step of the way, I'm just like, okay, I've got Kyle and my family and I feel strong and, and we're going to keep trucking along. You know, I, I remember saying once, okay, I have all the lessons I need. (laughs) You know, 18 treatments is what it took us to have our child through a gestational surrogate. And I, I think in year five, I was like, okay, this, this all makes sense. Cause I created pregnant and everything, you know, that all these connections were made. So I totally appreciate that line of thinking. And I think at a certain point you're like, okay, I've, I've learned it. I've learned it. I'm ready. I know there's going to be listeners out there and I know I don't want to not validate their feelings. Cause I understand before I felt the way that I did now, you know, I didn't, when I didn't have Brexton and when we didn't have the bundle of joy fund and when it was just negative test after negative test after negative test, I don't want to discredit that feeling at all. And every time that we have had a failed transfer or different things with the surrogate, I know what I just said came off very positive and strong, but there are still those moments, you know, of just devastation and weakness and heartache. And so I just didn't want to give the Instagram picture. You know, I will say I am 100% stronger than what I was, but also knowing that that's not all the time and that's okay. So, yes. Oh, I appreciate it because Instagram is a curated version. But in terms of what you do post, which I always appreciate, sometimes you do post those raw hard moments. I remember recently you showed the pregnancy test and I guess that was the test from your surrogate. Yeah. So we ended up finding, and it took us a year to find a surrogate and that's like a whole nother, we should do a whole nother surrogate 
podcast because that is yes, it is. <laughs> that is a whole beast of itself of and, and not even just finding the match, but just the emotions and all that. But um, anyways, I after a year and we found the most amazing woman and I just remember she came to the doctor and we did the transfer and they were like, Oh, her uterus is so great. And I was like, yes. I've been there. <laughs> yes. And like, and we just got along so well, our families got along so well. And I wanted to take a pregnancy test the day before she went for her blood test because I just felt like it was more intimate and, Yes, I know you're not supposed to take a test before your 12 days. Oh, we all do it. We all do it. I was like, it's five o'clock on the 11th day. She's going in at seven in the morning. Like I'm 12 hours off. I'm not that far off. And and so she took it and, and we all really thought it was going to be positive and, and it ended up being a failed cycle. It was devastating. It was devastating for her and us. And that brought about a whole new like I was sad and then I felt sad because I knew she was sad and that was really hard. And so then we had to make a really hard decision and go get some other opinions. And that was really hard for me because the clinic that we're at here in Charlotte, they're, they're family, like they're who our funds through, they're who we've been with for years. We know them so personally and so well. And we had to make the decision to just try a different clinic just to say that we've tried it. Not that I think that they're any better. I just was like, you know what? I need to at least try something different to be able to say I tried something different. And that's really hard. And it's been hard because we love our clinic. And for a lot of people who've been at a clinic for a long time, you get it. Like you walk in and it's like, hey, you know, everybody. I mean, after being there for this long, right? And so all all the doctors that we did speak to said that they think that over the years something must have happened with our embryos from the original cycle and so it was suggested that we try another egg retrieval so that was really hard if i'm being honest i haven't fully come to terms with the fact that we still have embryos that aren't going to be able to be transferred Oh, of course, that is devastating. I think for listeners who don't understand, you know, many of our listeners do, but for those who don't understand what an IVF cycle involves, it's it's every step is monumental during this process. And there are setbacks upon setbacks. So the fact that you have healthy embryos that were genetically tested and stored and frozen and safe, and then you can't use them is absolutely devastating in a way I think only people who've been through IVF would understand truly. Yeah. And it's so hard. It's like, and I don't know how it all works. I'm not an embryologist, but you know how they like grade them mm-hmm. basically and they give them different grades and whatnot. And, and so I sat down and we, and we showed the doctors and they were like, well, look, your strongest embryos have already been transferred and failed. You can try by a miracle, it might work, but. Is that why you moved on to a surrogate? Because the healthy embryos weren't implanting in your body? What what made you move? Yes. So because I was showing a decline from a pregnancy to a miscarriage to a failed cycle, they thought, well, your embryos are healthy. Like they've been genetically tested. So it must be you. They're like, all your tests have come back great, but 
maybe it's just unexplained and it's you. So let's try a different uterus essentially is how they explained it. And I was Mm -hmm. like, okay. And so then when we transferred a healthy embryo into a, what they call proven uterus and it still Mm -hmm. didn't work, then they Mm -hmm. were like, okay, maybe over seven years, like you don't know, right? Like you, Mm -hmm. you never know what happens in that time. And that was really hard to accept. And we had to talk about it and, we had to go see a few different doctors and get their opinions. And, and when they all kept saying, like, we suggest you do another egg retrieval because we don't think that these embryos left will be a success, that was hard to hear. Oh, and, and That is heartbreaking. And if I'm being honest, like, I haven't come to terms with it yet. Like, I, mm-hmm. it's kind of in that little compartment in the back of my head of, like, file away to, to like, grieve about and, and come to terms with later because – there's so much going on now with like a stim cycle and it's hard. And, and I do feel like over the years I've learned and maybe it's not a great thing, but sometimes you have to like take one thing at a time and deal with it and go back to other things. I know you mentioned in the book, your mantra one step at a time was very helpful because yeah. in general, right, that's all you can do because a lot of steps feel like you're going backwards when you're going through infertility. Just when you think you've made headway, then, you know, the car goes in reverse and you're like, what? I just went forward. How is that? So nothing's linear. Nothing is logical sometimes about the process. And I can only imagine that right now in your life. I'm so are you now you're documenting still in real time, you're prepping your body. Are you going to on Instagram be you think documenting every step again of the process? Yeah, I do. I have just seen such a positive feedback from other women either getting ready to go through it or who have gone through it that have been like, hey, thank you. I was really apprehensive about this, or I didn't know how to ask about this. And sometimes I ramble or I'll post things and not even think like it's really helpful for anybody. And then somebody be like, Oh, I read this and did this and this was great. And so we are, we're documenting it. I'm trying to share anything new that I'm learning. Um, with this new clinic, I'm on a very different supplement regimen. I was before our StidMed started that I, I haven't done before, like CoQ10 and different, you know, just different supplements. So I did a blog on that just to share like, hey, I don't know if this works, but I'm damn well going to try it because why not? Like I can take some super fruit vitamins, bring them on. So yeah, we're excited. We are on day four of our stim meds. So I surprisingly so far feel great, which knock on wood, I'm very surprised about, but I don't know, you know, we're going to go and we're going to try and, and just see what happens. We're all rooting for you. I I think it's really awesome that you're sharing so openly and, you know, not knowing the ending, like none of us do, is just a real snapshot of this process. Do you have anything else you want to share? You know, it's really important that when you're in your darkest times, when you're in your hardest times, to have self-love, it's very easy to blame yourself and that kind of manifests out to the relationships around you. I feel like especially after we had a miscarriage, like I just blamed myself so much and and it, it's not your fault. And you might be sitting there listening and have unexplained 
fertility or all these things and you're so frustrated and it is so hard. I mean, I think one of the best things I did was I bought the book Jesus Calling that really helped me. Mm-hmm. Um, we found a great church, find a great therapist. I was never, it's funny, I have a master's in psychology and I was like, I am not going to a therapist. Absolutely not. And then we started seeing a therapist and then I even started seeing an infertility therapist. So a marriage and an infertility one. And I was like, this is wonderful. Oh, it's um, so wonderful. Yes. And then also just reaching out and whether it's joining an app or, you know, getting on different social media pages and interacting with the other people commenting, there is such a sisterhood here of people and you will probably never meet them in person and you won't know who their husbands are or anything (laughs) like that, but you will connect with them on a level like you would never, ever believe. 100% agree. I love that. Thank you, Samantha, so much for sharing your voice with our audience today. I want people to check out your book. Can you share more on that when it's coming out and where they can find it? Yes. So my book debuts March 30th. We're super excited. You can, if you go to my website, samanthabush.com, you can find all of the different retailers that have it. Or if you go to kylebush.com, he has a storefront and there's autographed copies there if that's of interest. Or if you follow me at Samantha Bush, B-U-S-C-H, you will see us posting about it and talking about it and sharing some insights from the book. Love it. Thanks again. We will let, we'll, we'll be in touch on Instagram soon. I know. Perfect. Thank you so much. I appreciate thank you. It. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Pregnantish Podcast, where we cover the extraordinary lengths people go to to build their families with help. Until next time.